Hello, and welcome to my lecture series. My name is Nick Lugo, and thank you for being here. Before we get started, I just want to give an explanation or a reminder as to why you're here and why I do these lectures in the first place. It may seem true to you that the reason to come to one of these lectures, or a lecture in general, is to learn, and you wouldn't be wrong, but it's much more than that. You're here to act. The learning part is obvious, but not the acting. Often, I, more than anybody else, know how to act, but simply just don't act. For example, it's not a groundbreaking discovery that going to the gym is important. This is something that we all know. Yet, the hardest part is, and I'll say it again, action. As you know, the lectures that I'll take you through are hero stories, and there is much to learn from them. Therefore, the first lesson to learn from these stories and these movies is a simple one, one that you already know. Heroes follow their heart. They don't think about following their heart. It is action that separates the heroes from the rest. The goal of this lecture is to facilitate thought and action, as the two are so desperately intertwined. Therefore, I make this statement that I say with absolute conviction. If this lecture series does not change the actions you take in this world, then I have failed you. This idea of action is one that I explore with incredible depth in these lectures. Finally, if you're looking for a more direct way to act, I suggest you check out my new book, Breaking Your Bad Habits in 150 Pages, A Hero's Journey. My book takes these abstract lessons and applies them directly to you and any bad habit or human weakness that you might be struggling with. I place you in the shoes of a hero and show you how to be both a thinker and a doer, all in 150 pages for those of you who don't consider themselves readers. You can find the book on Amazon by searching it or by clicking the link in this video. Now, let's get on to the lecture. Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Lecture 5 of Beauty and the Beast. And, well, I wanted to start this off with a story. I want to start this off with a cool story. And, um, and by the way, if you haven't seen Lecture 1 and you're watching this on YouTube, click above. But I think this story is something that actually blew my mind the other day, and I think this is a really great time to tell it. So... The Beauty and the Beast, they make, a, they make a claim, right? They make this wide, far-reaching claim that this is a tale as old as time, and it's true as it can be. And, well, that's a weird thing, right? How is it true as it could be? It's a fairy tale. What's going on? And the story that I want to tell you is something that's absolutely crazy. My friend, at the moment, is going through a Beauty and the Beast story. Like, in actual real life, she is in a love story with a guy, and um, and she is going through Beauty and the Beast, and I think this is an absolutely incredible way to start it off. And I think this is really, really, it's really cool. It's a really, really cool idea. So I'll tell you the story first. I'll tell you exactly what happens, and then I'll tell you what happened and how it relates to Beauty and the Beast. So I have a friend. Um, I won't say her name, but, but she's the perfect representation of Belle, right? That's that's the that's the best way of looking at it. She is literally like the well, we'll say the most well put together woman I've ever met in my entire life. Like the thing about her is she knows what she wants and she goes for it. You know, that's that's one of the things that I really see with women nowadays or at least 
in my time, you know, I see that there are two different types of women, right? There's a woman that knows what she wants, and then there's the woman that doesn't know what she wants. And the, the fundamental difference between the two is if you, and, and this is the same with men, right? It's, it's literally the same idea with men, but the difference between the two is that if you ask a girl or if you ask this person, right, do you want to do something? then if they know what they want, they have the strength and they have the, we'll say, knowledge of themselves to say no. And, um, and well, that's what she's like. That's what she's like. So the best part about her is that she's just very, very strong and she knows what she wants. And if, and if it's not within the bounds of what she wants, she'll just say, no, get out of here. You know, she'll have the confidence, she'll have the strength to, to say, get out of here. For the people who don't really know what they want and and trust me, I've met a lot of guys and girls like this. You know, what ends up happening is they just kind of flow with the winds. If someone asks them what to do, they really don't know what they want to do. And since they don't know what they want to do, they just say yes to everything. And then, and then the problem is that they're a product of their environment, right? They're literally just what their environment is. They're not their own selves. And, well, my, my friend, well, my friend and Belle right? That, that's, that's what the connection here. They're both like that. They're both incredibly strong, incredibly well to put together and they know how to say no. So, so she, she is, a, she is a strong core. She knows who she is and she knows what she wants. So then she meets this guy and he's probably the exact opposite. He's the perfect representation of the beast. Not angry, not like overly masculine, overly animalistic, but just something like still acting off animal natures or something like the better the best way of saying it is undeveloped right he's undeveloped and and the problem with him is that well he was first of all parents got divorced you know rough family life rough childhood and then also he was able to or at least he had enough money to be able to cover all of his problems with goods right with goods and value and trips and things like that and well the unfortunate reality is he he never really discovered who he was because he was always spending so much time distracting himself and i think that's the fundamental problem that i've seen amongst men today it's just like you know we we spend so much time just doing things that we don't actually figure out who we are in the process so this is really the representation of him and um and he is probably a good representation of the prince, right? The prince in the beginning who, you know, essentially has all that he wants and doesn't really have any need to, to go beyond that. He says, okay, I have a shallow interest in something like money or something like things or something like value, and I don't really care about anything beyond that. So then um, so then they get into this relationship, and it's, it's, really, a, it's really perfect because what ends up happening is you have someone like my friends, right? The girl who's Belle. And the thing, the thing about why it works so well is that she's strong enough to handle his problems, right? Because that's essentially what's going to end up happening. He has these problems and he needs to sort out these problems. It's like, fair enough. That's a good thing. But the problem is you need someone strong enough who is, who is, who has already handled most of their problems and is willing to bear your load, right? And who is willing to, we'll say, handle your 
problems without making it their own problem. Because that's that's one of the things about Belle that Belle does so great throughout this entire movie is that she never makes his problems her problems. You know, it's like that's so easy to do. I actually, I personally got into a relationship in high school where that's exactly what I did. You know, it's high school. I think I was a freshman and 14, 15 years old, something like that. And my, uh, I was a pretty, I was a pretty well put together kid. And when I say well put together, I just kind of flat on emotions. Didn't really have too many like anxiety, depression, nothing like that. I have a pretty good family. So, you know, didn't really have any struggles on that front, but she had all of it. She had all of it, the girl that I was with. She had everything put together. It was really bad. And um, and the unfortunate reality there was I didn't know who I was. I couldn't bear her load. So when I essentially opened her up, when I started finding all these, you know, all these problems that existed within her and all the all the things that she needed to develop, I took them on to myself. And I started throughout that time I developed something like anxiety, definitely something like depression. And things started falling apart in my life. It was, it was a really, really tough time. Once I, I held strong for a little bit, but then after a while, once I started developing those things, it was really, really brutal. But the best part about Belle and the best part about my friend is she was able to hold it up, right? She, or at least so far, and I think she, she's good on that front, she's able to sort of carry it on, right? And say, okay, I could bear your load and also remain strong. So we'll say maybe that's the precursor to Beauty and the Beast, right? That's the precursor to this archetype of Beauty and the Beast and, and being something like Belle. And um, Okay, so we got that. So now what happens is she... So he's very insecure, right? He's very insecure and she really likes him, so that's good, right? There's she She's decided that she's going to sort of put in the initial investment to to help him, you know, and, and also, you know, get into a positive relationship. So what happens is she starts opening him up, right? That's exactly what happens. You know, this was a, probably a few months ago. She just starts opening him up. You talk more. He starts revealing more about himself. He starts letting his guard down and things like that. And that, if we're getting to the idea of Beauty and the Beast, that's the idea of letting her into his West Wing. Right. So so essentially, my friend, she went into his West Wing and he couldn't handle it. He just couldn't handle it. This is the thing that I noticed amongst people who are incredibly insecure. And I noticed this mostly throughout high school. One of the things that that really, really killed me was like, okay, you have you see a typical high school relationship, right? Your typical archetypal high school relationship is the group of people two people who get into a relationship for like two weeks and then they break up for two weeks and then they get together for two weeks and that cycle kind of keeps happening and they get together and break up like four or five times. And the reason behind that is something like both of them are so unsure of who they are and both of them are so vulnerable that every time that someone gets a little too far and gets in a little too deep inside that vulnerability, the walls that we sort of put up, you just lash out and completely end it. And this is, this is one of the things that I've noticed. Um, this is one of the things that happened to her. So what happened was she started breaking down his walls and she started, you know, essentially discovering who he is and discovering his vulnerabilities and all of these things, childhood issues, all that, and repression. And what happened was he broke up with her. 
he broke up with her. Just like just like the beast who tells her to get out of the West Wing, don't like I never want to see you again, like leave all that stuff. And the reason why is is very simple, right? The idea of the rose is that it's a flower, right? The idea of suppression, these repressed thoughts that we have, is that they're flowers and they're so damn vulnerable, right? Why is the the flower covered in a glass case? Because it's so damn vulnerable and all you got to do is touch it the wrong way and um and and it falls, right? And it dies. So So that's what happened. She started when it when it started figuring him out a little bit more and um and he broke up with her right away and he actually ended up telling her, I think it was like a week later, he told her, he's like, I don't know why I did that. Like, I cannot explain to you why I did that. There was just, it was just an impulsive thing where I was just like, I, I just, I just can't handle it anymore. I just can't do it. So, um, so in my interpretation, that's something like the, the beast in him that's saying, wait a second, you're getting too close. You're getting too close. This is a little uncomfortable. I can't deal with it. So now, well, that's what—that's the point where she's at right now. So, so that's why I wanted—that's why I wanted to put it there because that's exactly where we are in the story right now. So the next part that happens in Beauty and the Beast is, and this is exactly what happens in um, with her, right? Is that Belle decides to run away, right? So the Beast screams at her, tells her to get out, and Belle decides to run away, and well, the meaning behind that is super simple, right? It's super simple. Bell says, well, well, yeah, well, yeah, super simple, okay? All she says is, I don't, I don't want to deal with this, right? I thought maybe I could put in the investment before. I thought maybe there was something there, but why, why would I want to put in this investment? What is it worth if he's just going to scream at me? And you can't, you can't <laughs> argue with that because, because there's probably something that, um, that's wrong with that. And then at the same time, there's there's an idea in the hero mythology, and I like I like bringing the hero and the heroine mythology together because I think it's there there are a lot of parallels between them. There's an idea that when the hero decides to face the dragon, the first thing that he does is run away because he thought that he was gonna face you know we'll say maybe like a a 10-foot dragon who's kind of big and kind of scary, and he thinks he can handle that. But then what happens when he sees a 20-foot dragon that breathes fire in his face right away when he actually confronts the beast for the first time? And what the hero does is they always run away. And the meaning behind that is you thought it was going to be easy, right? Bell as the child hero. Bell as the, as the bright-eyed... The bright-eyed, starry-eyed kid thinks it's going to be incredible, but then she realizes, wait a second, this is not as it seemed. This is not as easy as I thought, and so she runs away, and so this is the point where my friend's at, and I wanted to, I wanted to tell you the advice that I gave her, because obviously I've been working through this Beauty and the Beast story, and by the time that I was, that she was telling me about this, I actually, I finished the, the, um, well, I finished. I finished this this lecture, or at least the like the planning for the lectures. So I f the first thing I told her, she says, "Okay, what should I do?" Right? I'm at the point where he just broke up with me, and I don't know what I want to do. Right? Do I want to do I want to see if I can make it work with him? Do I want to put back in the investment, or do I want to just say screw it? 
Like, why would you break up with me? That's so, she, she said, she's like, this is so disrespectful that he did that, which is true. And, um, and I don't even know if I'd want to stay. So I told her two things. The first thing I told her was, watch Beauty and the Beast, because, because damn, like, this is one potential way that she could, that she could solve it, right? There's, this is one potential way, and I think, I think that the fact that she's lived it out to this point is, is something that's remarkable to me. We're already, like, I don't know, an hour in through the movie, and, and she's already lived it essentially to the T. And the second thing I told her was, do you think you can handle it? Yeah. Well, I told her three things. Okay, so I said, do you think you can handle it? Because you don't want to run into that that problem where you're not strong enough, and then you know the, the essential problems end up falling on you. And the answer that she said was yes. I was like, okay, cool. The next question, and I said this was the most important, do you actually want to invest? Right, Because what you're going to do right now is you're going to invest your multiple your emotional energy, your time, your um, your trust, right? Like you're going to put all of this, you're going to put a huge bet on this guy. Are you willing to invest? And um, and that's a big question, right? That's a big question. You got to you got to see, you know. There are cuz cuz the easy answer, the easy answer that she could have said was no. There are a thousand other men that that could easily replace him and and why would I want to why would I want to invest in this one guy what's the point but she didn't say that right but that that could have been the easiest point to make and say okay yeah I'm not going to deal with that but she said she said I think I'm going to handle it so I want to see where that goes but I think that's a really really that's really crazy right what is she going to do she's going to try to essentially keep going into his West Wing. That's all she's going to end up doing. She's going to keep going into his West Wing, and we're going to get onto the, <laughs> the... Like, the the next part of this movie explains exactly what she is going to do, or at least what she should do. So I think that's... There's something incredibly special about that. But anyways... So what happens is Belle decides to leave, and right away, she faces these wolves, right? She sees a bunch of wolves, and the wolves try to kill her. And I'll explain that later. I'll explain that later. But what happens is, so the beast comes in, and he protects her, right? He protects her, saves her from the wolves, and and sacrifices himself for her. Because what happens is the wolves kind of take him down, and even though he scares off the wolves, he, he kind of faints and, and loses consciousness, and... And yeah, like, you know, like really, really, really chose to sacrifice himself for it, really put his all into it, and really got hurt for it, right? Like, he actually received some sort of problem for doing it, and so then what happened is, Belle decides, so she sees him lying in the background, right over here, and um, here's another thing, right? Here's him on the floor, and she sees him lying in the background, and she says, okay, what do I want to do? I have the option right now, I could just walk away and leave him here, or I could stay and help him, right? I could stay and choose to invest, and that's exactly what my friend is at right now, and this is, this is such an important point in the movie, because what she's really deciding right now is, do I want to remain as a child? 
Do I want to remain as somebody full of potential, somebody full of all these options, somebody full of this bright looking view on the world? Or do I want to actualize it? Do I want to finally take my, my ideas, my ideologies, all the things that I've been putting forth and, and take action on them and put them in the real world? And uh, so, there, so there's two ways of looking at it, right? In one case, you could say she's giving up her freedom, right? Because the thing about a child is, and the thing about any sort of plan is that when you're, well, we'll say, yeah, yeah. So the thing about any sort of plan is that there are so many directions in which you can go, right? Let's say, let's say you're a kid and you want to be, you could be an astronaut, you could be a doctor, you could be a, you could be a baseball player, you could be all of these things. But what ends up happening is once you decide to take a step down one path, so let's say you decide to be a baseball player, you cut off all the other paths, right? And and that's not easy, right? What you're doing there is you're giving up your freedom and you're giving up your freedom to choose paths and you're giving up your potential. You're giving up the the potential use that you possibly could have been, right? The potential astronaut, the potential doctor, whatever. And you're also giving up something like the illusion that you could be everything. That's one of the things that I find to be the, the most difficult to let go. Because what happens is, and this is something that I've seen across my life, definitely, is that... Well, I, sa I said this for, well, we'll relate it back to the entrepreneur example. The reason why I never got started on being an entrepreneur is because it kills the dream of being an entrepreneur. It kills the dream of, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to go live on a yacht and I'm going to have all this influence on the world and I'm going to make all the difference. And it changes it to, wait a second, that's not exactly how it is. And maybe the plan that I established, maybe the, the innocent plan that I wanted to go on in the beginning, maybe it's, maybe it's not going to be like that. And maybe, maybe I'm not even going to get there, right? Because the, the problem with taking a step towards your goals, whatever that is, is that you realize that it's not as easy as you thought. And for some people, and this, this is what I've noticed, you know, for some people, it's just better to keep the illusion. It's just better to keep the illusion that maybe one day I will get there and maybe one day I'll be happy. And I've seen this all the time in business school. You know, the thing about it is I have every time I come up to somebody, I always ask them. And this is the thing that kills me. I say, what do you want to do? And most likely they say something like finance, accounting, you know, those soul sucking jobs. And the reason why I say soul-sucking soul jobs in this case is because they even know that it's a soul-sucking job. They know that it's not easy. And they know that they don't want to do it. And then they, they say, but one day I'm going to be CEO. One day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire early. Or one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, make something of myself or whatever. This, this pain is only going to be temporary. And that gets them through. That gets them through. And what I've realized is that for some people, right, for some people, they could actually do that. For some people, they actually do become the CEO. And for some people, they do become the CFO. But for 92% is probably a good percent. Something like 90 to 95% of them. 
end up just getting stuck in the CEO in the in the finance job or the accounting job and it's because you realize you're like wait a second I have this plan. I have this plan to eventually be a CEO, CFO, you know, some big shot, whatever. But you have no idea how hard it's going to be. You have no idea what you have to do to put to put it in. And for you to just keep pushing that off saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'll just be that someday. That's just that's just a little bit of a coping mechanism, in my opinion. And so that's the problem. Right. So the question is. Why don't you be real with yourself? Why don't you be real with yourself and say, wait a second, no, no. I am going to be a finance person and I'm most likely going to get stuck in finance for the rest of my life. Or or I'm going to pick this path, more generally, I'm going to pick this path and most likely I'm going to lose all my access to all the other paths. And the reason we don't say that is because we lose our freedom. Right, we lose our freedom and we also lose the dream. We lose the illusion that we could potentially go and get it. And that's what Belle's struggling with right now. So in this moment, when she decides, okay, do I really want to do I really want to save him? Right? Do I really want to invest in him? She's really saying, I am getting rid of the person that I of the of all the other people that I could be. You know, maybe something like the person who is married to Gaston, right here, right? Like, once she decides to invest in this, she decides, okay, I am getting rid of plan B, which is the person who's going to marry Gaston, and I'm getting rid of the, we'll say, reliance on my father, and I'm also getting rid of the culture in which I have been raised in. She's got to do all of that in this decision, and so, and she's got to give up her freedom. She's got to give up her potential. You know, the, the archetypal person of Peter Pan is, um, oh, is it what Pan means? Yes, yes. So this is, this is something Jordan Peterson figured out. Pan means everything, right? The idea of Peter Pan means that he is the, well, he's potential, right? He could be anything and he could be, in terms of Pan, he could be everything, and that's why he decides never to grow up. He decides to keep that illusion even though he never really wants to settle on something. Settle on something that, settle on a path that is worthwhile. And, well, that's why she's saying, I'm going to let go of my childhood. So what happens is she chooses to, um, she chooses to, to offer him care and to, and to help him and to invest in him, you know. And the next thing that she says is, I can't go back to my childhood. Right, it's it's part of the next song. She says she realizes that once I decide to choose this path, that I I have to get rid of all the other paths. And this is an idea that I saw I saw it a while ago, and I think it's a really really interesting idea. And I think maybe I'm starting to understand it a lot deeper. The idea lies in something like this. There was a, there were colonists, I think it was American colonists, many years ago, and this was in the 1600s, you know, this is when we actually had boats and navies, and, um, and there was no airstrike, right, right, this was like, this was like something like conquering America, and the, the, was it English? Not important, so you have the, you have the captain of, we'll say the, the English, right, the, 
the people from England going up against the Native Americans. And they were outnumbered. So the, the, the people from England were completely outnumbered. I think it was, it was either 100 to 1 or 1,000 to 1. So they show up on their boats and they say, oh God, this really, this is really, really bad. Like we are going to get absolutely slaughtered here. And the captain of the boats, the captain of the English boat, uh, of the English Navy takes a torch and lights up all the boats. He burns all the boats and he says, well, now there's no plan B. Good luck, right? There's no option for retreat. And that's the exact idea. The exact idea is, okay. If you're going to put your all into something, if you're going to do something that is actually worthwhile and actually worth achieving, then you have to set your whole mind on it. And there can be no plan B. That's an idea that Mark Cuban talks about all the time. Mark Cuban as an entrepreneur, he says, you got you to gotta burn your boats. You got you to get rid of plan B. And you got to not be Peter Pan. Right? That's exactly what you're saying. You're getting rid of the potential that you could be and you're actualizing the potential. One of the things that I write in my journal every morning is sort of like an affirmation is don't have potential be written on your tombstone. Right? That's a really that that idea is probably the reason why I'm doing this lecture today. You know, it's probably the motivation that got me up to do it today because I am full of potential. Right, I'm young, right? Whenever we're young, we are all potential. And it's a question of whether or not you actualize that potential. That's it. That's it. Whether or not you turn your, your illusions, dreams, thoughts into actions that actually have an effect on the world. There was another great quote that I think really sums it up perfectly. It says something like, yes, the smallest act of kindness is better than the grandest intention. And that's the they're really hitting on that idea. You know, it's, it's, it's a really, really strong idea that you could apply to your life. It's like, okay, you really think that you're a good person? What? Do you think that you're a good person because you believe that someday you're going you're gonna to donate to charity and someday you're going to help people? It's like, no, no. Help people now. Help people now. It doesn't have to be something big. It doesn't have to be the huge plan that you've been doing, that you've been offering up to see if you could, you know, we'll say, help the starving children in Africa. But... Just do something small. Just do something small. And take action to actualize your potential. That's a good idea. So she kind of, she kind of, we'll say, puts that idea into words where she says, I was innocent and certain. Now I'm wiser, but unsure. So she realized, okay, before I was this bright-eyed child, essentially, right? Because this is a maturity story. She was a child. She was somebody who relied on her parents and was incredibly immature, incredibly immature. And now she, but she was certain, right? That was the thing. She's like, I could handle this. I could do it. You know, you say you're going to fight the 10-foot dragon and you're like, oh, I could take down a 10-foot dragon. No problem. But what happens when the dragon's 30 times bigger than you thought it was? And, well, I've come to, Well, so that's actually something that they've proven in, um, man, I can't remember the name, but this is something that, um, that was psychologically proven. It's something that makes such little sense, but at the same time, at the same time, I can understand the biological mechanisms behind it. 
what actually happens in your brain is whenever you decide to go for a goal, right? And you have limited information on that goal. So let's say I tell myself, I'm going to read, what book is this here? I'm going to read this book. No problem. I could do it, right? And when I look at something like this, I say, okay, I could read this book. I could do it. You know, all I have to do is, is read for three hours a day and for two months and that's and that's it that's all i need to do it's not that much of a problem you know that's the child here you're innocent but certain and um and for whatever reason psychologically this is true so for whatever reason we you have the most confidence when you're about doing something when you try to achieve it that's like saying oh yeah you know i'm just gonna go to the gym and i'm just gonna go to the gym every day i'm gonna quit smoking and i'm just gonna I'm just going to quit smoking. I'm just going to do it, you know? Throw throw your throw your cigarettes or your jewel in the toilet and say, that's the end, right? It's great. But what ends up happening is we overestimate psychologically. We overestimate the likelihood in which we're going to actually get it done. And I think, I think that's the motivation that drives us forward. Because let's say, well, here's the thing, right? 92% of people who set on a on a major life goal, fail. If you knew that going into it, then maybe you just maybe you would just say, I don't want to do it in the first place. It's not worth it. Uh, 8%? What is that? What are those numbers? I, and then you just never get up off the couch. You just never tr- strive to improve yourself. So it seems like we've developed some sort of biological mechanism in which we can be innocent and certain. Say, okay, I'm going to take some action but I, have, I really have no idea what I'm handling. I'm, I'm incredibly naive. And then hopefully the ones who are strong enough are the ones who can confront who can confront the, the dragon, right? The even larger dragon at in pieces, right? So that you can keep motivating yourself to go on, but at the same time, you you can will say, handle the shock of realizing that you're not as prepared as you thought you were. So, that's where she is right now. She says, wait a second, this is going to be hard. This is not going to be easy. I really don't want to do this. Or, or at least, I really want to do this, but at the same time, it's just not, well, easy. Right? It's not easy. The dragon that I'm facing is, facing is going to be larger than I thought. So, she's, she essentially decides to be a heroine, and okay, so I think this is the point where I want to, yes, this is definitely the point, where I want to explain a point that might be a little bit difficult, right, a point, a point that I'm sure a lot of women are thinking, and I really want to kind of kind of clarify something that I think is is probably the most contentious idea, maybe the most contentious idea today, but I'm going to see if I could, if I could kind of explain it in a way that, well, makes both sides happy as well as helps you understand the world a little bit better. So it lies in this idea of the heroine, right? And it lies in this idea of the hero 
And one of the main problems that women have with mythology is why do men get to be the hero, right? Why do men get to go and do all these incredible things and, uh, and do all these, you know, get to explore and, pr and progress and, and go into the world and do all these, you know, and achieve things. And then women, their, her their heroine's journey is simply just taking a man and refining him. So it's like, their case is, why is the hero's journey so much more glorious than the heroine's journey? And to start off, I'll say something like, fair enough, because there is something incredibly, we'll say, glorious about the hero's journey. But there's a lot more than that, so I really want to break that down. First, it lies in the difference between the hero and the heroine's journey, right? So the hero's journey is really simple. Go out and achieve things, right? Go and achieve things, achieve status, get things, slaughter the animal, and then come back, you know, um, save the city, all of these things that lie sort of around the external. The, the heroine's journey is also really simple. Take a man and refine him, right? I read this book, it was called A Billion Wicked Thoughts, and that's exactly what it is. It takes the it takes the female romance and erotic stories and sort of breaks them down and tries to find the, the commonalities between them. And it seems like that's something like the heroine's journey. Take the man who's unrefined and refine him. That is Beauty and the Beast. That is Twilight. That is Fifty Shades of Grey. Like it's, it's all of these stories that are so embedded in our culture and they just, they still are popular today. So, So what's the difference between the two? The difference between the two is really simple, right? Men are more focused, heroes are more focused on things and achievements and status, and women are more focused on people. Now, the first question that I offer to women is, why is that a bad thing? You know, like, so, so here's something that we've sort of been able to to prove across all of, uh, throughout cross-cultural studies, which is essentially all something that we could come as close to figuring out as a universal truth. So there was a cross-cultural study where they, they ask people, you know, in different cultures, different ethnicities, different places, they ask you, what makes you happy, right? First of all, I think it was something like, are you happy and why are you happy? And across cultures, the one thing that they found that was that made people happy amongst all cultures is friendships, friendships, relationships, you know, close bonds with people, people, right? People is the thing that made people happy. And that's not a surprise, right? Like we know that we know that to a very strong degree. But at the same time, you look at the hero and the hero doesn't go for people, right? The hero goes for things. The heroine goes for people. So one of the things that I've noticed across, we'll say the women that I've met is that, or at least the women that I've met in business school, because the thing about business school is that it is very masculine dominated, obviously. And at the same time, all the incentives are masculine driven, right? You think of something like money, money is things. So, you know, you really you really need some masculine traits, a masculine personality to be able to um, succeed in the in the in the capitalist system. And that's I think that's the main reason why women want to be heroes. Like if you were to kind of leave us to ourselves, 
It sounds like heroin is a better deal. It sounds like to be a heroin, to be somebody who works with people and helps them, that is like the ultimate goal. It's like, that's amazing. But um, but because the financial incentives clearly are are more focused on things and they're more focused on masculine traits, I, I can imagine why. And it, it makes sense why women want to be heroes, but or at least some women want to be heroes. But one of the things that I've noticed in in um in a business college, you know, is that most of the women that I've met are very feminine. Right? Like you'd really think that that the women in business school are really, really masculine, right? In terms of, you know, really money driven, really focused on on gaining things and gaining the we'll say well, as much money as possible. You know, I have, I have a guy friend who says he wants to make something like $10 million by the time he's 25, right? That is a hero's journey right there. Like that is a straight hero's journey that probably, that has nothing to do with relationships, right? But what I've noticed about females that I've met around here is that most of them care more about relationships. Most of them care more about about their friends and their family and things like that. And... Then it got me thinking, right? Why? Why why do the women not choose to work the 80-hour weeks, the 90-hour weeks in mass and um and sacrifice their relationships like men do? And the reason is quite simple. It's like why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? I'm sure, I'm sure and I'm this is what I've come to a conclusion, a simple conclusion on is that Working 80 to 90 hours a week does not make you happy, right? I, th- I think we could come to that, that realization. And then it's something really simple as to if a woman has good relationships and she's happy, why would she want to sacrifice that for 80, 90 hours a week? Why? Like, what is the reason for that? And, and, and the, another way of formulating that question is, why would you want to adopt such masculine traits? And the answer seems to be really simple. You don't, right? Like, you really don't. And there's really, there's such a small incentive to actually go and do that if you're actually looking at it from a full humanistic point of view. And, and then they're also sitting there, and this is, this is one of the things that I've noticed in... in um, in business school is really simple. It's like, okay, let's say, let's say even, let's say you choose to do the 80, 90 hours, hours a week. You're still not guaranteed to be successful. You're still not guaranteed to be successful. There are a lot of other people who are also doing the 80, 90 hours a week. So it's not even like if you decide to go on a hero's journey as a female, that you're going to be successful. It's like, no, no, you're taking a risk. And at the same time, you're giving up your the the thing that's going to make you the happiest, which is your relationships. So therefore, it's more of a question as to why do men do that, right? I think there was there was a great stat that I heard the other day: twenty one percent of CEOs in America, or twenty one percent of either Fortune five hundred CEOs or just CEOs in America, are symptomatically psychopaths, like they have psychopathic tendencies, and that's insane. That's insane. They're the people who have a psychopath is someone who has very little emotional response. And well, doesn't really like people, 
right? Doesn't really like people. And for some reason, they really like animals, which doesn't make that much sense to me. But someone like Hitler, like Hitler was a psychopath. You know, um, a lot of the, a lot of the hyper, hyper successful men are psychopaths and, um, or have psychopathic tendencies. And, well, they don't really have relationships. They don't really care about that. All they care about is working the 80, 90 hour weeks and getting stuff done. And the simple question is, why would you want to do that? Right? Like, why would you want to do that to yourself? And I think that's, I think that women in mass have chosen, they're like, wait a second. I just don't want to be like that. Like, I just, I just really don't. And Yet for men, it's a little bit different, right? Women seem to be given a choice. I think I think that's the best part, you know. So, women heroes exist, right? Like a lot of a lot of the a lot of the females that I've met are, are very, we'll say, goal driven and want to be very successful. It's like more power to you. That's that's great, and um, and the thing about them is really really simple. It's like okay, you say you want to be successful. You say you're going to go on a hero's journey. It's like, that's cool. That's cool. But you also have this option, and you could fall back on it whenever you want. You decide to get into a relationship and be a, and, and have a kid. It's like you, you get to be a feminine hero, uh, a heroine, right away. It's like you, you can do that. You have the option of both. It seems like for men, men, men don't really have that option. Or at least it's not, it's not widely available for men because... It's like, it's a little bit different, right? It, it seems like it seems like we operate a lot differently, and it lies in this theory called sexual selection theory, which I wanna, I'll explain to you very very quickly. Across all of history, across all of history, let's imagine that this is before marriage, because I think um, before modern times, before civilization, before all these things, while we were developing, eighty percent of all women, when you were born, if you were born, you have an eighty percent chance of being reproductively successful. So you're born as a woman, and most likely you're going to have a kid, right? Most likely, 80%. That's a that's pretty good percent. And a lot of those people who ended up dying were the people who died in childbirth and all these things. And um, for men, it's different. For men, it's 40%. When you were born as a man, you have a 40% chance of re being, reproduct re being reproductively successful. That means you have a 60% chance of failure. Think about that. Think about that for a second. It's like, okay, if you decide to fit in with the crowd, if you decide not to take risks, that is certain failure. That is certain failure. If you decide not to be the person that will, will say, conquer the snakes and conquer, yeah, like jaguars, lions, all those things. One of the things that I mean is, and this is, this is really boiling it down, it means take control of the external world. Because if you don't take control of the external world, first of all, you get eaten by the external world, right? Snakes can eat humans. That's the unfortunate reality of it. And so can lions and so can jaguars. But also, you have to hunt, right? So that's the thing about men, and that's probably why, why it's so different from women. You see that, first of all, men are stronger, and at the same time, women are incredibly vulnerable while they're pregnant and when they're um, taking care of their young. And... The reality is that during that time, they cannot hunt. So what do they do? They do something like get a partner who can hunt for them during that time. And 
you create sort of like a symbiotic relationship. You create a relationship where, okay, you hunt, I take care of your kid. We're both happy, you know, and none of us can survive without the other. And that's one of the, uh, Well, so that's the reason why men have to take risks, most most likely. It's because, well, men can't be the heroine because you can't have two heroines. You have a man who's incredibly, we'll say, relationship-focused and a woman who's incredibly relationship-focused. The problem is you have nobody who goes and gets the food, you know? You kind of need that. So, And you have nobody who can protect. So the problem is, and, and this is why I think women are lucky, but at the same time there's there's a fundamental... Well, I'll say women are lucky. I kind of like that because they get to choose, right? They get to choose. If you want to be masculine, then you can go and and be masculine. The only problem is you run into this problem of you're 30 and it's very unlikely that you'll meet someone who's a woman who's 30 and doesn't want to have kids. Like that's really, that's really it. So it's almost as if there's a cap on the, on the amount of success that you could have on the masculine, um, dominant hierarchies, right? The in this case, in this case, the capitalist system, but they get full access to the feminine. They get full access to the her- the heroine's journey. And I mean, hey, listen, that's it's nice to have that choice, right? It really is nice to have that choice. And and this this is why I think most people, most women nowadays, still choose the um, the impulse to relationships, the impulse to heroin heroinism, and the answer is something like it's better, right? It's just, it's just objectively better to go and, well, the thing is, you know, you take a man and you refine him and you make him a better person. It's like, most likely you're going to be successful on that. And also you have multiple tries. So all you have to do is be right once. And that's the heroine's journey. But for the hero's journey, it's like most men fail. 60% of men fail. And well, you see it, right? You see it. There, there are a lot of there are a lot of men in our society, and I think it's more prominent in college because in college it's more of a free market. It's more of like okay, if a man wants to have access to, we'll say, thirty females, he could if he wants to. And and you know, by the time that you grow up, there's marriage and everything like that complicates it. But in something like college, you see that there's there's the clear winners and there are the clear clear losers. And, well, women only women only want to go for the people at the top. So that's why men fight to get to the top. That's why that's why the hero's journey exists and that's why we'll say very few can make it to the top. And that's something that you see. You see this with ants. Ants is really popular and I mean you see it with humans, but but it's more prominent in ants. What ends up happening is oh, and chimps. Should I say ants or chimps? We'll go with chimps. So there's this one species of chimp that I find really, really interesting. I forget what they're called. They start with the G. But but one one of the special thing about them is they have this sort of like hourglass in their in their chest, and this is this is for the males and the females, but but it's different. So we'll we'll say the males. So for the males specifically, they have this sort of hourglass for their chest, and it's a certain color. So for the, we'll say alpha male, roughly speaking, for the alpha male, it is a blood red. It is a dark, dark red. And then for the, for the 
every other male, right, for literally every single other male, it's, it's more of like a pink. And, well, the thing about it is it's almost as if, and it, it's exactly as if, you have this little, we'll say, social counter within you. And this, this is Jordan, Jordan Peterson's phrase. He says you have this social counter within you that sort of says, okay, this is where I am on the, on the dominance hierarchy. This is where I am in terms of social status. And, well, the reality is amongst almost every single, no, I'm not going to say almost every, but, but many of the animalistic tribes, what ends up happening is the alpha male or whatever you want to define as alpha, um, he's the one who has access to all the females, it's not like it's not like it's a it's a marriage system where one one female goes to one male. It's like no, the male has access to every single female, and that's why, for example, in the Lion King, there's it's only Simba, Scar, and it's only Simba, Scar, and Mufasa, right? Like that's really it. Um, so that's what happens in these chimp tribes, and you have some someone like the alpha who. Um, who gets access to all the females? We'll say he's at the top. He's part of the forty percent, and then you have someone like all the all the betas. And what the betas do is they essentially they they hunt, they do some they do some menial work, right, to help the tribe flourish, and they also help raise the children. So they literally have a completely non-sexual role. And well, one of the things that drives well, one of the main thing, the main thing that drives sexual desire in men and females is testosterone. So you could imagine the one who has the the red hourglass has the most testosterone. The one who has the people who have the pink, they actually experience a drop in testosterone. They are literally biochemically changing as a result of their social status. So what ends up happening is you have something like the beta challenges the alpha, right? Either the alpha gets too old or he gets weak and he starts neglecting his duties or whatever happens or, or the beta just says i've gotten strong and i want to have access to all these females of course of course so what ends up happening is there's a challenge right this sort of challenge happens you got the little beta with his little pink chest comes in and he fights the he fights the alpha and let's assume that the the beta wins right the beta wins and what happens there is there's a we'll say biological agreement okay he's the new alpha old beta is the new alpha Within three months, all it takes is three months, that old beta now develops a red hourglass. And the, and the old alpha, his, his red hourglass turns into pink. And his, his testosterone also drops. So what happens is he literally just regresses and they essentially flip roles. So it's a crazy... It's a crazy, crazy species, and, and we're sort of like that. I would say we're very like that. And this is one of the things that that men sort of have to struggle with. Men sort of have to struggle with this idea of, okay, I need to win with women, and I also need to win with men. Because if I lose with men, then I'm therefore going to start losing with women. And... Because my testosterone drops, serotonin drops, all of the all of these chemicals essentially you essentially change as a person, and and that's why we have heroes, right? That's the the hero. The hero is primarily the person who ascends amongst the masculine hierarchies. It's you know at the end he gets the girl, but that's not really like the main point of it. The main point of it is he he conquers something or does something incredible and then he ends up getting the girl so that's that's sort of the full picture on that but 
Anyways, let's get back to the heroine's journey. And it's a really simple idea what ends up happening here. You know, this is this is something that I've sort of been building to. Belle says, you know, there's a song where she starts to get some sort of affection for him. And she says, but he was mean and he was coarse and unrefined. This was before, right? And, um... And then now she sees something in here in him that wasn't there before. And then what kind of happens is she kind of teach. I think this is really good. What happens is she kind of she throws a snowball at him, and um, and he gets all offended, right? And what happens is she's kind of teaching him how to play. She's kind of teaching him how to live. You know, it's something that he kind of missed out upon. And she just teaches him how to how to do a simple snowball fight. You know, so she's really when it says he was coarse and. He was mean and he was coarse and unrefined. What she's going to do is take upon the burden of refining him, which is quite perfect, right? She's turning him into a human, essentially. And then he does things that make her feel like, you know, that are, we'll say, self-sacrificing, right? He gets her all these books, shows her a library. Um, she shows him some play. And... Well, I think this is this is this is pretty strong. Essentially, what she does is she describes perfectly what everything that he's already seen before. So she describes, you know, uh, the river that exists there, and um, that exists in his in his little you know castle territory, and she makes him look at it differently. And that's kind of that's kind of what it is. So it kind of shows it as a psychological transformation. He looks at this the trees and the river and, and the beauty of nature, and he sees it as something divine instead of something to sort of walk past to to get to the castle. And Well, you could say he's getting in touch with something more than his own self-interest. Okay, so we'll end it. And no, I mean, we're, we're, almost, we're almost done to the to the transformational process so we'll finish the transformational process so so he refines himself he essentially um he gets a new way of looking at the world one that's guided by bell and also is less less self-interested more focused on the world and then there's sort of one final thing that um that needs to happen before she makes the change and before they kind of get together in this in this we'll say beautiful union which ends up being the dance but what ends up happening is she sort of so it seems like Belle has something that she has to has to has to deal with and she has to deal with her um her mother. She has to deal with something something that resembles her mother. And um And that's an idea that Jung talked about with a lot of with a lot of um specificity actually. It was called the mother complex. And what he said is for the mother complex within the daughter is is kind of complex because what happens is your relationship with your mother for for a for a daughter it actually has an effect on who you see yourself as which makes sense because you know you look at you look at your mother from a, as a child and you say okay that's kind of my hero that's the person that I want to be and there are so many different ways that you could take it you know so there's there's one mother daughter complex where the daughter is essentially always living in his mother's shadow and the mother always kind of ones up the daughter and therefore the the daughter never separates herself from the mother and and that's that's exactly what's happening here so i'll explain it really 
in a really cool way. So what ends up happening is you have, let's say that you imagine it like a duck and a duckling. That's a good way of looking at it. So you have the mother duck or the mother goose, right? And you have all of his kids following her. That's essentially what it was like with Belle, right? Belle was her mother. She was exactly her mother. And, um, and that's something that, that we've already determined within the story. But what ends up happening is the problem is that when you're always following your mother, you never develop any sense of individuality, right? You're, you're literally just the carbon copy of your mother. And this is something that happens with boys and their fathers too often. And um, so what must you do? What must Belle do to finally, we'll say, ditch that part of herself? is she must realize where her mother failed. She must realize where her mother has any flaws. And this is what happens when she goes into herself and finds that her mother died of the plague. What she, what's really happening here is she's saying, okay, I was my mother. Like I, I, am, I am very, very similar to my mother. I was a carbon copy of my mother, but she was wrong here. And I'm gonna differentiate, okay, here's Belle and here's Belle's mother and Belle's mother failed here. So I'm gonna be successful here. And Jung says that this is one of the, this this is incredibly important for the development of the self, right? The development of the individual person, and so that's exactly you know they they just gave a little bit of something like that, and that that's the precondition in this case to um, to Bell and the Beast being fully transformed. So this is where we'll end it. We'll end it at the symbolism of maybe the most beautiful scene, and maybe the, the most important scene. Maybe also the most iconic scene out of all the Beauty and the Beast um, stories. It's this. It's this idea of the dance, and right. Belle wears her yellow dress, and she decides to dance with the Beast. You know, and well, you could take this in many ways. You could take this in many ways. But what I'm going to do here is I'm going to I'm going to choose to develop on the previous ideas that we've been sort of. Um, that we've been working with here. So a dance in this case could be a sexual metaphor, right? Sort of like the union between two people, but that's not what I think what I think they are really going for here. What I really think they're going for here is the refining of the aggressive male, right? Or the, or the insecure male or the, or the animalistic male, because right here, right? We'll take it back. She says he was coarse. He was mean and unrefined. So what is the symbolism therefore of a dance, right? A dance is something that's coordinated. It's, it's, well, it says mean, coarse, and unrefined, right? So it's not mean, but it's kind. It's not coarse, but it's gentle and it's not unrefined. It's refined. You need to be fully coordinated, fully coordinated and you need to be fully human, right? So what, what's really happening within this dance is it's the symbolic, we'll say something like the symbolic change within him to show that he is human, right? To show that he has, even within his beastly nature, has shown some sense of humanity and and in some, in some sense he's overcome his animal nature. Because, well, a beast doesn't dance, right? Animals don't dance. So, um, 
So we're almost there, but that's that's the full Let's see. Yeah, that's 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 almost the full story of of Beauty and the Beast. All we have is one lecture left. And it probably won't even be that long of one. So that is the end of this lecture. End of lecture 5. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, please subscribe.